1: Welcome to a special impeachment update edition of Words Matter. So, Joe, last week was a significant one for the House impeachment inquiry. And on Thursday of last week, the House of Representatives voted 232 to 196 to approve rules and move forward with the impeachment inquiry into President Trump's conduct. Now, that vote was mostly along party lines, with all Republicans voting against, joined by two Democrats from districts Trump won in 2016. So let's first talk about the timing of the vote, given that there there's no requirement that she do so. Why did Speaker Pelosi call the vote at all? And why did she do it last week?
0: Well, let's take one step back. If you looked at some of the Twitter comments Thursday afternoon, we're saying Trump's impeached. Uh, Trump was not impeached last week. Speaker Pelosi took the step to put something and put people on record to define the process by which he may or may not be impeached. Uh, It had to do with things like depositions being authorized to be released uh, that have been taken over the last two to three weeks uh, It had to do with how the, the intelligence committee will take the lead and how they'll move forward in public hearings, what the Republicans have the right to do in those hearings with the president and his legal team will have the right to do. So it basically is kind of a rule book for moving forward with impeachment. Having said that, this is all about the politics of impeachment. This vote was a couple of things. One is, I think you can overemphasize the importance of all the Republicans sticking together. This was a vote on process, how the rules were going to be set, how they were going to move forward, not a vote on the underlying facts of what the president did, the corruption, the abuse of power in terms of Ukraine, and even going back to some of the Mueller report obstruction issues. So Republicans can go home to their districts and say, I haven't made a decision on whether the president was right or wrong on Ukraine, but I don't think the Democrats were fair in the way they've gone about it and the way they're proposing it. So I voted no. Now, if there's more information that comes out in the public hearings, well, I will take a hard look at that. And it gives Republicans a safe place to sit right now. So why did Pelosi call the vote? Well, I think the simplest way to look at this is this is very much a political fight over who's controlling the narrative. The Democrats are talking about an abuse of power, corruption, and constitutional issues, doing what the founding fathers and the framers of the Constitution wanted them to do to keep foreign interference out of U.S. elections. And the Democrats claim there's no more solemn responsibility that they could have. The Republicans' narrative is different. They want to talk about process. They don't want to talk about Ukraine. They don't want to talk about pressuring President Zelensky. They want to talk about, well, were the hearings open or were they closed? They want to talk about whether uh, these people should testify or they shouldn't, whether they have subpoena power or they don't. They really want to avoid that. And I think uh, Speaker Pelosi understands completely that this political fight matters. Because it's either going to be, at the end of the day, a fight over what the Constitution says and big ideas, or a partisan fight over very small ideas. And this vote was designed to take away much of the argument of the Republicans, the process stuff. Now, they'll still argue that this is partisan and look at the vote if there's no Republicans. But she has, I think, pretty effectively cleared the field to now focus on the underlying facts and giving the Republicans a lot less room to say it's not about the phone call or the quid pro quo. It's about the way Democrats are being unfair to the president. So again, she didn't have to do this vote. And there are some commentators who believe that Republicans had a great day uh, last week because they all stuck together. I don't necessarily buy that for the reasons that I've articulated now. But also, it's not necessarily a great look for the Republicans with people knowing what they know now, uh, which is a lot about who knew what when and how this all went down. And Republicans don't even want to move forward with the impeachment. So again, there are lots of speeches on the floor about big things. But this was about partisan politics.
1: Right. So one of those speeches before the vote on the floor was Speaker Pelosi, and she addressed the House and made her case based on the Constitution and the separation of powers, the oath of all members of the House that they take to uphold that document and the law. So the speaker said, what is at stake is nothing less than our democracy. She also took issue with Trump's repeated claim that Article 2 of the Constitution gives him the power to do whatever he wants. So, Joe, what did you think of the speaker's framing of the issues?
0: Well, it goes to what we were just talking about. It really is whether this is a big frame about constitutional issues or a small frame of a partisan fight, you know, like the tax bill or the Affordable Care Act, something that's important but doesn't rise to the level of removing a president or upending the political uh, power structure in our country. You know, I think one of the things that makes this argument so important is the Trump White House and his lawyers arguing that somehow they have what they're calling constitutional immunity. Katie, you went to law school. I don't know if you took that course. but
1: Yeah, it exists, uh, and, and it's powerful, and I think it'll be a key part of the subpoena fights, but I'm not sure that it's being asserted correctly in all of those fights, but go ahead.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think what what they are arguing in a number of different cases is the president has no right to be investigated, which, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I think it's was settled a long time ago that congress has every right to investigate the president they have an obligation to investigate the president or his cabinet or whatever and i think a key issue going forward and you know this is this is process so it, it tends to work for the republicans better than the facts is how and when and if the white house will cooperate at all they're in a position now where it's, I guess, what I call one-way due process. They're demanding due process from Congress. They're demanding they have the right to cross-examine witnesses. They're demanding that Republicans should have subpoena power. But on the other hand, they claim the right to not cooperate at all. Uh, the president said in an interview late last week that he has no intention of cooperating because he doesn't need to. It, you know, It is reminiscent of Richard Nixon, after he left the White House, telling David Frost that if the president does it, it's legal because the president can do anything he wants. And that goes to this idea that Trump keeps articulating that Article 2 gives him the power to do whatever he wants. I don't think that's what the framers of the Constitution had in mind. And it is certainly not what Democrats are thinking. But it goes very much to this idea that Democrats have to keep this about the big picture. They have to keep this about constitutional issues and the institutional damage this will do to the presidency if President Trump is allowed to get away with this kind of behavior. And, you know, Republicans, as I said, will argue that this is just about politics. But this is, you know, much broader. This is using presidential power and appropriated congressional money to extort or force an ally into getting involved in our politics.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think the arguments that they are making and these constitutional issues that are coming up are going to, I think, at least in part, make the courts central to this inquiry, uh, whether or not they want to be. And part of that is the constitutional immunity assertion. There was a piece in The the New York Times a week ago talking about Kupperman asking to be able to, to speak to the House when he filed suit for that. Uh, and it qualified or it or it described uh, constitutional immunity. Immunity as executive privilege on steroids, and I think that's exactly right. Although I'm not sure that it can be asserted uh, for the Deputy National Security Advisor, and that question is going to come before the courts. The, the scope of executive privilege and constitutional immunity, and how that gets applied to the president's advisors. Which is important that the president have advisors that aren't afraid of constantly being subject to scrutiny of this type, but also important that the House is able to do its due diligence and investigate uh, potentially problematic behavior from the president and from his advisors. So I think the courts will be at the center of some of these questions that are bubbling up. As much as they try and keep it political, there, there are going to be some legal angles here that play a role.
0: So, Katie, let me ask you this, which is, you know, the, I think the political dynamic for Democrats, for Pelosi, Schiff, Jerry Nadler, uh, and others, is trying to get this thing done on a timetable where it doesn't dominate a presidential election year. I think the White House strategy in many ways is to run off the clock on these things. They know what the Democrats are trying to do, and they're trying to thwart the Democrats' By trying to get this into next year, knowing that they don't want this to infect the campaign, what can the courts do to expedite, knowing if you're, if you're a federal judge, you read the newspapers, you know what both sides are trying to do, what can they do to intervene to either expedite or stay on the regular order to, to be relevant in the process?
1: Well, frankly, the courts can do pretty much whatever they want. Uh, With lifetime appointments, they are essentially the kings and queens of their courtroom. And a good example of that is a couple of weeks ago on Friday, Judge Beryl Howell, the chief judge in uh, the District of D.C. ordered that they needed to turn over the 60 grand jury material in the Mueller report, that DOJ needed to turn that over to Congress. And by the following Tuesday, so in four days, a three-judge panel on the D.C. Circuit said, hold on, we're going to put a stay in place here while we consider what's going on and while we figure this out and rule on it. So, And that, in- that four days included a weekend. So courts can move very quickly, either on their own accord, suesponte as it's called, or when they are asked to. And in particular, the D.C. Circuit is flexible in this regard because they deal with these types of national security questions and important uh, government balance of power questions all the time. So uh, courts can decide who can go testify, what the scope of privilege and immunity is, in a matter of weeks, if they want to. Now, the question is, who's deciding when those cases are going to come up and if they want to hear Them And that will be up to the panels and the judges deciding whether or not to hear the case and ultimately, if it's the Supreme Court, whether or not to grant cert. So they really can get involved um, and they can stop the flow that's happening or they can help expedite the process. I don't think that that's their motive when they're making these decisions, but they have the power and the capability to uh, really play a central role as things are moving quickly.
0: Let me push a little bit further on that. Would it be appropriate for a judge or even would they consider if they look at this and they see one side for the purposes of getting the result they want, slowing things down, to use that as a factor in how quickly they want to move it?
1: No, I don't think that would be appropriate. But I think that would be uh, in the context of a judge acting on their own, su sponte, which is very rare. What is appropriate is to ask for emergency stays or ask for an emergency expedited ruling on an issue, particularly involving national security. And when courts receive those emergency type questions, they take them very seriously in contemplating how they can give the, both arguments their due weight and in how they can reach a proper conclusion or what they deem uh, the right conclusion in the a uh, time Allotted, Uh, And these come up in national security cases all the time involving the United States holding prisoners overseas, involving uh, national security investigations that are happening all around the country as they need to move quickly with witnesses or or people getting on planes, which we've seen um, even in the past few weeks. So courts can move quickly when asked. I think it would be less appropriate for the court to act on its own and kind of move the ball to advance a personal interest. And I don't think you've seen that so far, and I doubt that you will see that going forward. Okay. All right. So back to the inquiry and the politics of it, which we should keep it in its political sphere where it belongs. Under the rules that were set by this resolution that was passed – Transcripts and depositions taken so far will be made public, and the rules for the hearings going forward were set, and the president's counsel was granted the ability to receive evidence, attend hearings, question witnesses, and give a concluding presentation subject to White House cooperation with the process going forward. Joe, do you think there's anything in the House resolution that will get the White House to cooperate in any way with this process?
0: The short answer is no. They have no interest in cooperating, because I think uh, right now what we're getting from these depositions, and we'll know more um, once they're released and everyone can read them for themselves, is from the sort of mid-level White House employees, State Department employees, mostly civil servants who are career, they're not political, they weren't appointed by this president, with a few exceptions. Uh, We're getting a very clear and consistent picture of behavior by the president that is impeachable, Um, using the power of the presidency, abusing the power of the presidency to get a uh, foreign country to get involved in our election. It's become very clear. There's going to be a big old debate about how wrong that is and whether it's worth removing a president, and we will get to that, but we have a very clear picture. The White House is desperate to keep the more high-profile people, the John Boltons, the Mike Pompeos, the Rudy Giuliani's, who actually were the engineers of all of this, uh, as opposed to the implementers and observers from testifying. So there's no, I can't imagine that the ability to make a closing statement or cross-examine witnesses from the White House is going to be worth it for them. What it does, though, is it makes it very hard for them to argue that the Democrats are being unfair. The Democrats have put a perfectly reasonable proposition on the table, which is, in essence, you follow the law and the Constitution and comply with our valid subpoenas, and we'll let you be part of the process. We don't have to let you be part of the process, but we think it's fair that you are. But you've got to do the other thing first, which they have no intention of doing. And it's part of the... The skirmishing before the battle, you know, many times in military history, the skirmishing set the parameters for how the battle will be joined. Uh, So this is all very important, but the real battle is yet to come. Uh, That's the long answer. The short answer is, again, no, they're not going to cooperate.
1: All right. So let's talk about a couple of key witnesses from last week. The first was Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Venman. Lieutenant Colonel Venman serves as the director for European affairs for the National Security Council, and he is a decorated veteran of the Iraq war. In addition to other honors, he received a Purple Heart for being wounded in Iraq. He is also an immigrant, having been born in Ukraine. Last Monday, Lieutenant Colonel Venman testified for more than 10 hours in front of the House Intelligence Committee. Another key witness last week was Tim Morrison. And until Wednesday, Morrison was the top Russia and Europe advisor in the National Security Council. He was also known to be close to former National Security Advisor John Bolton. So let's start with Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. By all accounts, his testimony was compelling and damning for the White House and President Trump. What did you make of the White House and their allies' attacks on Lieutenant
0: Colonel Vindman? Well, let me talk for a minute about what he said and then why he was attacked. He's a key player here in the National Security Council. He is the go-to guy in the NSC on Ukraine. So let's take one step back. What is the NSC? The National Security Council was established in the aftermath of World War II to help the government coordinate national security across multiple agencies. The world had become much more complicated as we tried to rebuild Europe, as we tried to build a new architecture for alliances in the world NATO as we've seen the Atlantic uh, alliances President Truman felt that it was critical that we have a structure at the White House to coordinate that very small organization has grown into a very large organization at the White House I, I don't I think when I was there which is 20 years ago it was I think it was more than 200 people these people are are generally detailed from other parts of the government, from the State Department, from the Defense Department, from the CIA, from the NSA, all experts on the things that are critical to our national security. Their job is to coordinate, is to make sure what Pentagon is doing is consistent with the State Department doing, and that the intelligence agencies, that everybody knows what everybody's doing, and that our policies are thought through and implemented consistently and thoughtfully. So if you're doing something that potentially is illegal or impeachable, the people who are going to know about it are sitting at the National <laughs> Security Council because, again, they're coordinating all this. So Colonel Vindman is a key player here. And I think we found that, you know, uh, Ambassador Taylor from now several weeks ago was very important as far as laying down the foundation of what happened. Colonel Vindman was critical to saying what happened and who was doing what. And the critical part of his testimony was that he was able to attach what was done, which was the president pressuring President Zelensky, and then attach that to what was done to cover it up. And one of the things that he talked a lot about was the so-called transcript, the summary of what was talked about. He made, I think, two important revelations. One is that that transcript was not complete that things were taken out and they weren't just taken out. he objected to them being taken out because he thought it changed the meaning of the call and was shut down this The second important uh, thing was he talked about how and I think this is an issue that will we will talk a lot about in the next week or two how when objections were raised uh, at his level in the National security Council, how the White House legal team took over and essentially tried to bury this information by putting it on a secret server. So in, you know, in one important gentleman's testimony, we learned more about how it happened, and then we learned about how they tried to cover up what would happen and in the, in the somewhat desperate attempts to make sure that this information never saw the light of day. So let me shift to the second part of your question, which is the White House efforts and the Republican efforts to discredit him. I mean, there's no other word to use but despicable. This is a guy who's an American success story, came to America at three years old from Ukraine. He and his twin brother have achieved the American dream. They they joined the Army. They they fought valiantly in the war. Both of them now serve in the White House on the National Security Council. It's the immigration story that proponents of immigration – Tell that makes America great—that people are able to come here and contribute on a grand scale as, as coming from another country, which is very different than the story that President Trump likes to tell about immigration. But the idea that you know a bunch of Republican congressmen and people at the White House would go after uh, Colonel Vindman and question his patriotism, call him a, you know a leftist, as Donald Trump Jr. called him is is despicable, and it's absurd, and I think actually undermines their ability to defend the president. I think the reaction was instantaneous uh, and in Washington and around the country, that this was out of bounds, that it was unfair. And I think it overall, it leaves people with the idea that if they'll attack him this way, this hard, in this time period, that they really must be hiding something. So I think the attacks backfired, but they never should have happened in the first place.
1: I wholeheartedly agree and resonate with Nicole Wallace's chicken shit chick commentary that went viral, at least on Washington, ah, D.C. Twitter this I week.
0: wanted to say chicken shit first, and I forgot. <laughs> Katie, you win on that one.
1: <laughs> Thanks. I get the chicken shit award of the week. Um, it's
0: interesting that it is sometimes something like what Nicole said that actually frames the narrative, even if it's just for a couple of days – But there were a lot of smart people who said a lot of things that took lots of sentences that maybe people listened to, maybe they waded through, maybe they didn't. But Nicole captured it uh, when she just said this is chicken shit. And it just was – it really, I think, was a significant part of the debate that surrounded those three days.
1: I agree. All right. So let's talk about Tim Morrison. He's an interesting character. And you mentioned Ambassador Taylor's testimony. According to press reports, Tim Morrison corroborated Ambassador Bill Taylor's testimony about the quid pro quo for U.S. military aid to Ukraine. But he also reportedly testified that he saw nothing illegal in the president's phone call with Ukraine President Zelensky. Now, both Republicans and Democrats characterized Morrison's testimony as good news for their side. I want to ask you what you make of a witness like Morrison.
0: Yeah, Morrison's one of the few people who've been deposed who's not a career civil servant. He's someone who has not served Democratic presidents like uh, Vindman has and Ambassador Taylor and Fiona Hill. All of these people who uh, likely will be here after Trump is gone, whether it be now, 2021, or 2025. He's a political appointee. He came in as an accolade of uh, John Bolton being the darling of part of the conservative movement in in Washington, D.C., I I have a kind of contrarian view on his testimony, uh, particularly on the Republicans' talking points on it. I think uh, President Trump called it a fantastic testimony. I don't think it's fantastic testimony, and here's why. Here's a guy who is a political uh, appointee, who is someone who is on the side of the president and is an admirer of the president. And what the committee got out of him was corroboration from a Trump loyalist of all of the things they've heard from other people. So if you're on that committee and, you, have, and you, you are suspect of believing that there's a deep state out there among civil servants and radical bureaucrats, as Stephanie Grishin called them, you might think that all of these people who came up really are just trying to undermine the president rather than say accurately, this is what happened. Well, Morrison blows that up because he came in as a loyalist to the president and said, yeah, everything Taylor said is true. Everything Vindemann said is true. And then he offered his opinion, which was he didn't think it was illegal. First off, Morrison's not a lawyer, so it's about as worthwhile as my opinion on the legality of this. But I think that he is a significant witness because you now have a Trump loyalist who corroborates the main elements of whether it's a crime or an abuse of power or corruption. You have someone from the inside who admires the president, who's diming him out on, on all of this. And he was in a, in a position to know what happened, and he testified to that. And at the end of the day, it's re, it's irrelevant what he thinks, uh, whether whether it was legal or not. Let me push this one step further. If he thought it was legal... Why was he running to the council's office to say, we got to deal with this, that this idea that somehow it was going to leak, I don't think uh, is believable. He knew that there was a problem. And again, even if he was being genuine and saying that his issue was it was it a leak, his purpose for uh, Chairman Schiff here was to get one of Trump's guys on the record corroborating this and he got it. Uh, and that's that's what's going to matter.
1: I agree. I actually think that this idea of whether or not the behavior was legal actually misses the point when we're talking about the political process that is impeachment. At the end of this process, nobody's going to take away President Trump's personal freedom. This isn't a courtroom where, you know, he's being accused of a crime. And we know from the Constitution, it says that a president can be impeached for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. We know what treason and bribery are. But but it's kind of unclear and not defined exactly what is high crimes and misdemeanors. And this idea that they have to find a crime or even that they're pushing to find something within the criminal code to impeach, I think, is a misfire because uh, there is no piece of the criminal code for a directly abuse of power or abuse of office. You could make the argument maybe there's something like bribery going on here. But again, this is a political process. Impeachment is bound by political rules. And whether or not it's legal, is not necessarily at issue.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I was talking to Michael Zeldin, who's one of uh, a very highly respected legal expert, particularly on impeachment issues. He was very prominent in the debate in 1998. He made exactly that point in a slightly different way, which was he said, no one should get hung up solely on the quid pro quo. This isn't about proving there was a quid pro quo. It's something broader, which is abuse of power and corruption. Right. And I think he's right because you can have a very interesting legal debate about what's the meaning of quid pro quo and the criminal code that misses the point.
1: I agree. All right. So since impeachment is a political process, let's take a look at what the political polls are telling us. Back in September, when the details of the Zelensky phone call first became public, there was a sharp uptick in support for impeachment And removal. But that's remained relatively unchanged in the last five weeks. And now, uh, as political analyst Ron Brownstein pointed out, looking at last week's ABC News Washington Post poll. The groups Democrats rely on most are strongly supportive of impeachment and removal, with 66 percent of non-whites in support, 59 percent of college-educated women, and 59 percent of voters 18 to 29. But among Republicans, 82 percent are opposed to Trump's impeachment and removal. So how do you see those numbers moving once public hearings start?
0: Well, I mean, that's that's really the big question. I think the most interesting thing in last week's Washington Post-ABC poll was the president's approval rating among Republicans is down to 74%. He likes to say it's 95%. Well, I can do math. Um, 95 and 74 are two very different numbers. So you've seen an erosion. And it may not be that Republicans at this point are willing to say, I'm for removing him. But they're beginning to be um, disappointed and disenchanted with how he's doing his job. And that's the precursor for moving them to he should be impeached, he should be removed. So I think if you look at this from the Democrats' perspective, the numbers were pretty clear before Pelosi moved forward, that most of the country, a near majority in some polls, a majority in other polls, did not want the president impeached, uh, nor did they want him removed. They just saw this as something the country didn't need a, a, at this time. The Ukraine story, I think, uh jolted that conventional wisdom and people were open to taking a different point of view. The first phase of this inquiry, the depositions behind closed door, I think had a significant role in the first movement of the public, which is about a, a you know roughly across all the polls about a 10 point movement plus 10 on whether he should be impeached and or removed. That's a big move. That is very significant. We shouldn't underplay that. And we should not uh, look at this as something that's leveled off and is never going to move. The second phase is about public testimony. And I think we will know at the end of this public testimony whether that has moved public opinion again, whether it has eroded Republican support, and whether it has had the impact of independents, moderates, people who are not particularly partisan, saying, Well, I didn't really want to have to go through this as a country, but now that I know everything that happened, this this guy's got to be impeached, or he has to be removed. So we'll we'll probably know in early December, I would guess, where the public is. Remember, Nixon was removed not not in a straight line this the watergate inquiry impeachment investigation special counsel all of that was done over you know well over a year and public opinion stayed with the president for a lot of it everybody's talking about will the dam break and it's overused but it is the right metaphor we see cracks in the dam we see some leaks and it's not going to break in an orderly fashion of it's five points a week for five straight weeks and all of a sudden Republicans say, oh, the president's dead. We, we got to get rid of him. Each of these phases attacks the foundation of the president's support. We're going to know a lot more um, at the end of the public testimony about how strong the foundation of that dam is. And if it begins to break, I think you'll see Republicans... Taking a second look at what's in their interest. And their interest is, put simply, getting reelected. And, you know, if the president's at 29% job approval, like Richard Nixon was, and 70% of the country thinks he should be removed, you're going to see a different set of Republican talking points um, than you see now. So, you know, it's like looking at the Democratic field in Iowa right now. You look at a poll and you think, oh, well, whoever's on top is going to win that's 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 never the case. It's a snapshot. These polls right now tell you where the country is, but the really interesting part is digging deep into these polls to see how much the president's support has eroded on some of the underlying issues of trust and honesty and abuse of power. And there's plenty of evidence that the president is in trouble. What we can't predict is what this public testimony will be like. It could be devastating to the president. It could be like the Watergate Select Committee hearings in the Senate in 1973, or it could be a circus like some of the Judiciary Committee hearings were this year. We can't predict that, but ultimately at the end of it, the polls will reflect uh, what comes out in this testimony, and the polls in many ways will dictate particularly the approach the Republicans take. Uh, They're not going to die on a hill that's not savable.
1: Joe, you make a great point about job approval numbers. And the two presidents to go through the impeachment process in the 20th century were second-term presidents who couldn't run again. How does Trump, being in his first term running for re-election, play into all of this?
0: Well, it's it's, it's kind of the whole political equation here. And I I think because it is unique, people don't have an answer. Uh, They just have theories. The consequences for a Nixon or a Clinton were, will I be able to stay in office, will I be a lame duck in office, or can I come through this somehow having kept enough public support that I can be an activist president for the rest of my term? Uh, Nixon obviously was one that couldn't survive. Uh, Clinton, as, as we've talked about many times now, his job approval numbers actually went up by 10 points. So he was able to do many of the things that he wanted to do as president. This is a different equation. This isn't about what does the second term look like. This is about whether you get a second term. And there are arguments on both sides that I think have merit. For the Democrats, I think it does make a lot of sense that a president under fire that has been shown to abuse power, who has a very low job approval. The ABC poll that we've been talking about has his overall job approval at 38%. There's a working theory in politics that anything under about 48 or 47% means you're dead in a re-election campaign. He's nowhere near that. You'll just have a wounded candidate and the Democrats can put somebody up and they'll they'll win going away. The Republicans, I think, are arguing a little bit out of the Clinton experience, which is what impeachment does is it tends to divide people and energize the accused more than the people who are accusing in our tribal politics. Uh, And they're counting on an enraged Republican base turning out in numbers that we've never seen before. We don't know which is right. And that's what's going to make the end of this year and all of next year for political scientists, the most fascinating laboratory I think we've ever had uh, in presidential politics in this country, because all of this stuff will be happening in real time. There'll be a campaign going on, and then there'll be a referendum on all of this on election day. And the public will either give Trump a thumbs up or a thumbs down. That's if he makes it that far.
1: And finally, let's talk about timeline. Back in 1998, as you know better than most, even with the Star Report and four years of investigation, it took more than two months for the House to move from an impeachment inquiry to articles of impeachment. Given that we're already into November, do you think that the House will approve articles of impeachment before the end of the year?
0: I think there's a distinct possibility they will, but let me add to this that makes it even more extraordinary. When the House Judiciary Committee in early October in 1998 took up the impeachment inquiry, they weren't really inquiring about anything. They weren't investigating anything. They were just reading the Star Report to each other. So there really wasn't much for them to learn. Um, And what it became was a political process to try to prosecute the president politically through the impeachment process uh, and hope that they could build enough public support for it that the Senate would vote to remove him, which was a tall task given that the Republicans uh, held the Senate, the majority in the Senate, but it was a a small majority and you would have to flip just like Democrats will have to this time, 15 to 20 party opposite uh, senators to have the president uh, removed. So it is extraordinary that they are able to move this quickly now, given that they're having to do the investigation. Up until, I don't know, what is it, four or five weeks from now, we didn't even know about this Ukraine issue. We, we didn't know who Zelensky was. We didn't know who Bill Taylor was. And, and members of Congress didn't know. They've been able to pull all this together quickly, and there's a real argument um, for saying that maybe they are moving too quickly, that they should slow down and be methodical. But again, this is a political process, and the political calendar is dictating uh, quick action because I think the Democrats feel like what they really want to do is replicate 2018, which is run a campaign based on issues of health care, issues of jobs in the economy, curbing gun violence, reproductive rights, and position the president as someone who hasn't done anything and is guilty of the worst public corruption in American history. That will be very hard to do uh, in the context of an ongoing impeachment inquiry. So I think the, the conventional wisdom, and it's probably right, is that you need to wrap this up quickly. Uh, And given the fact that it is not likely the Senate will remove Donald Trump, it is not likely the Senate will put on a real trial, it is not likely that Republicans in the Senate will deal seriously with the underlying issues, that let's get this done quickly, because the Democrats have laid down the issue of corruption. Uh, They can continue to talk about many other areas of corruption, whether it be emoluments, whether it... The, some of the things that have gone on with his family, you know, we don't have his taxes, all of those things, these issues that have been around, they can tie this up in a neat bow with he's the most corrupt president in history and not have to have removed him. Uh, so I think that's the judgment. Like I said, there is an argument that they should go more slowly, that this should have more care But this is, Katie, as you've said multiple times in our conversation, this isn't about the law. It's not about the Constitution. It's about politics. It is a political process where two party opposites are fighting for what this all means. Uh, And at the end of the day, I think most people believe that this will ultimately be decided at the ballot box. And a lot of what's going on here is positioning for that and again, I don't want to dismiss um, Speaker Pelosi's argument that, that there are big, broad issues here. There are. If Donald Trump is allowed to get away with this and win re-election, if you think he was emboldened with, quote unquote, getting away with Mueller, imagine what Donald Trump unplugged will do in his second term when it is actually affirmed that the president can't commit a crime. Uh, So there are very, very big issues here at stake here. The Constitution is at stake here. But how this will be prosecuted has to do with the politics of Washington, not the constitutional principles that uh, the framers spent so much time on.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Now that we are well into November, we are under a year to November 3rd, 2020. So the countdown is on for Democrats and Republicans to get their act together and figure out how they're going to go into the election year. Well, that's all I have for this week, Joe. Thanks for your thoughts, as always. Until next week.
0: See you next week. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.